Thank you, Pastor Lane. Um, yeah. If I thank you, thank you for what you've shared. Thank you for your heart for this community. Okay. And pray. Join us in praying. When you start, I'm sorry, this is off the cuff, but um, when you start praying and dreaming of how God is seen and felt and, and expressed in a community and you ask God to come and dwell with us, it's a lot. And it takes a lot to lead in that. And so thank you for your humility. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for how you're leading us. All right, we're going to turn to scripture now. Uh, if you would like to open your Bibles with me, we are going to be in Acts 8, starting in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candence, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah out aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join the chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before his, its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. F Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So, for some of you, you're realizing, uh, Lane, we just spent like a thousand weeks in the book of Acts. Why are we back here? Um, I actually skipped over this chapter during our Acts series because I wanted to save it for this series. Uh, last week, we introduced our vision series, this idea that we are a community following Jesus from fear to love, that God wants to move us from this place of anxious reactivity and fear in our culture to a place where we go on the offense and we are in loving response to people. Um, and we've been praying and discerning together as a team, and we've come upon what we call the narrative. We're going to throw the narrative on the screen. This basically is our dream and our vision for Red Hills. We have a dream that one day all people in our community would be fully embraced, fully transformed in Christ. But the problem is our world is driven by fear, and thus we create cultures of division, isolation, and shame. That is why we exist, to foster a community following Jesus from fear to love. 
So each week during this series, and last week we started it, so if you missed that and you want to know what kind of holistic spiritual formation is about, we talked about that. And this week we're talking about this next value, this next pillar, which is generous belonging. So we'll show, we'll show the circle graph. At the center is holistic spiritual formation. We talked about John 15, this idea that we draw our life from the vine, the source that transforms us from the inside out. And today we're talking about generous belonging, generous belonging. You know, one of the more challenging things about the gospel and how Jesus is, is how he seems to be so generous about what kinds of people are welcome in his kingdom, right? Jesus went out of his way to welcome people into his life whom society and and dominant culture would deem inconvenient or shameful or even dangerous to do so. Even if you look at the disciples, some of the people that he asked to come and follow him in his ministry, he, he asked someone named Matthew the tax collector. Now, I don't know if you know much about what was going on around this time, but the Romans had conquered the Jews, and they were oppressing them in a lot of ways, and uh, the poor really suffered because of this. And tax collectors, they were people who were from the Jewish community who would get a cut from the Roman government if they collected taxes from their own people. So they get to be rich. They get to be um, uh, uh, sitting pretty, as some would say. No one says that. I'm saying it. Um, They get to be rich while all of their peers are poor. They're sympathizers with the government. And then he also calls someone named Matthew, or sorry, named Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were basically rebels. They were planning and scheming about the demise of the Roman government. They hated the Roman government. Jesus asked two people who could not be more different from one another to be in community following him together. Jesus deliberately gathered people who typically don't get along. Jesus also spent a lot of time with sinners, a lot of time with prostitutes, people with leprosy. Society was built around avoiding the unclean, the impure, and the undesirables in order to avoid getting their ick on me. But Jesus was different. Jesus was always intentionally seeking out those whom society would actively avoid. So answering the question of where we belong is pretty straightforward. When we come to know the love of Jesus, like we talked about last week, we we abide in his love and we find transformation and we bear the fruit of a good life. We belong. And we belong with other people who, who also choose the love of Jesus, like we're grafted into the same vine. But it gets more difficult when we are compelled to acknowledge that not only are we beloved, that we are loved by God, but that others are loved by God. When we have to invite them to the table, whoever them is, right, those who are very different than us, the generous belonging that Christ extends to people is quite inconvenient sometimes downright annoying, which is why most of the time it's easier to say that everyone belongs with Jesus. It's very different to actually live that out, right? Dr. Gregory Coles, he wrote this book called No Longer Strangers. And in this book, he says this, we all want to be accepted and welcomed and taken in, even especially when we are at our very worst. But almost nobody wants to do the accepting and welcoming and taking in. Almost nobody wants to go around finding the most unpleasant, the most undeserving people available, declaring I choose you. You belong with me now. I think when we are unable to welcome others the way Jesus welcomes us, it leaves us in a very angry and bitter and resentful place. And it's because we miss out on the joy of extending the same love and grace that Jesus has extended to us to other people. And so our lives become less about generosity and more about trying to hoard what I have because I feel like there's not enough for everyone. The truth is, Jesus instructs his followers to love everyone. 
like literally everyone. On the Sermon on the Mount, he even tells them that you have to love your enemies, that you have to pray for those who curse you, that you have to bless those who persecute you. He doesn't even give us an out when it comes to who we love if the people aren't actively seeking our demise. He doesn't give us an out. Because it's easy to say things like, yeah, I love everybody. It's a lot harder when those everybody's get more specific, right? Like, I like to think I love everyone, but I do have a hard time with that one neighbor or that one coworker or that one politician on the news, that person who lives in a way that offends me, that person who votes differently than I do. Sometimes when we say we love everyone, what we really mean is, well, I don't hate anyone. But is that what Jesus calls us to? Just don't hate everyone? Notice the command isn't tolerate your enemies. Put up with those who persecute you. No, Jesus says to love them and to bless them. These are active attributes. Remember, this is Jesus we're talking about. This is the man who laid down his life and died for the very people who were killing him. And this is the kind of love that he invites us into. So you can write this down or take a mental picture. Our capacity to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. Our capacity to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. How do we learn to do that? How do we begin to extend not just easy belonging to those who we want to belong, but generous belonging to everyone, including those who make us uncomfortable? And this is where we turn our attention to the passage that Pastor Kate just shared with us. This story begins with a man named Philip. He's known as Philip the, uh, sorry, Philip the Evangelist, and he's one of the first deacons in the early church, and many believe that he was actively involved in Jesus' ministry while he was walking the earth. And first thing I want us to notice about Philip is his listening posture. Philip is a really good listener, and I think it's important that we learn how to be good listeners, because I think for us, it will be impossible to do the impossible things that God has called us to if we're not listening to where God is sending us and what he would have us do. Notice the angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, hey, go stand out on the 99 and just wait for someone to come to you. And he's like, sure thing. <laughs> he just goes. No questions asked, no context, no, he doesn't know what his calling is. He just gets to respond and go to stand on the side of the road. And at this juncture in the story, I think it's important to examine the listening posture of our own hearts. Are we listening? Are we listening? Note that there are two entities that Philip is listening to in this story. The first one is God, and the second is the person to whom God sent him. He listens to God, and he listens to the person whom God sent him. If we are to extend generous belonging to God, to, or of God to anyone, we have to be listening to God, and we have to be listening to the people that God sends us to. See, because listening is a very important part of wisdom when we look at the scriptures, James, the Apostle James, in his letter to the church, he writes, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Easy, right? In Deuteronomy, there's this really important prayer that the Jews would pray, the Hebrews would pray. It was called the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Jesus comes along later in the Gospels and says, and Love your neighbor as yourself. See, the word Shema is translated in English as the word hear, but really the word Shema is bigger than this. This word means to listen and to obey. To Shema 
was to hear the instruction and to follow it. You could not have one without the other. Sometimes I wish my kids felt the same way about how they listen to my instructions. I think God can handle our tough questions, but we have to admire Philip's trust in God. And when I read this, I have to wonder, am I that attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing around me? Am I that ready to drop what I'm doing and to listen to what he's saying and then to listen to the world around us? Are we listening? Are we mindful of God's presence in our lives? Are we prayerfully seeking what he wants for the people around us? Dr. Amy Oden wrote a book on prayer, and she says this, In a world where so many feel that they are sleepwalking through their lives, Jesus' call to be awake resonates with the vague awareness of missing out on our own lives. The Spirit can be speaking into our lives, God can be moving in us, and we will miss it entirely because we are lost in mental machinations. In a dominant culture that in my personal experience is pretty defensive and polarized and pretty self-absorbed, I think it's crucial that Jesus' followers learn to be different, that we learn to be those who are quick to listen, that we stop reacting anxiously out of our fears and our anxieties, but we start responding to people in love, hearing them, seeing them for who they are so they can be understood. We're called to listen and to obey, to love God and to love people. I don't think it's an accident that the command to listen is paired right next to the command to love. They're said in the same breath. David Augsburger, he wrote this. He said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Think about the times that you feel the most loved, the most seen. It's when somebody wants to listen to your story and they don't put their judgments and their assumptions in there. They genuinely want to know what it's like to be you, right? Being a good listener is an integral facet of being a loving person. Someone will only ever feel like they belong if they feel like they're being heard. So are we listening? Now, the interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian, it takes place in like three minutes on the page. But if you look at the geography of their route and how long it would have taken them to go from where they were to find water, they probably were together for the better part of a day. Philip acted as a guide to the scriptures. But in order to guide this man through the scriptures, he needed to know what kinds of questions he had about what he was reading. The Ethiopian asks, is the prophet talking about himself or talking about someone else? Why is the Ethiopian asking this question? Well, there's a few things that we can observe about the Ethiopian. There's a few details in the story. One, he's from Ethiopia. It's pretty obvious. Nation in Africa. He's likely a person of great status because he's in direct service of the queen. He's a eunuch, which means he's been physically castrated. If you don't know what that means, just discreetly ask the person next to you. They'll explain. (laughs) When someone in this culture was castrated, it could have been for a couple of reasons. They might have had it forced upon them at a young age, or they might have chosen it for themselves at a young age. And when this happens, your life is no longer about what you can contribute in terms of your identity. It's all about what you can do for others. You become completely utilitarian in your society. So although you have access to wealth and power, who you are is all about what you can do to serve the queen. So he's honored, but he's also dehumanized in like one fell swoop. But what's fascinating about this man is that he's on his way back from worshiping in Jerusalem. He's from Ethiopia. Why is he doing this? This could mean a few things. He could have been a Jewish convert. He was baptized in the way of Judaism. He also could have been part of the Jewish diaspora, Jews that were spread all over the world. Or he could have just been on his own personal journey of faith and found hope in the Hebrew scriptures. It doesn't matter. Either way, this is what would have happened to him. When he tries to worship at the temple, 
he would not have been allowed in because he was deemed as physically mutilated and therefore not within the ritual guidelines to worship Yahweh at the temple. So he's barred from worship in the temple. He's barred from much of the spiritual life of the Jews because he represented one of the most profound points of shame a Hebrew man could carry in this culture. He was unable to have children. Which to us, that might be here or there. But back then, this was a deep shame. Who you were was the children that you were able to produce. Imagine, imagine having something that made you different than pretty much everyone else. And by the way, that's the thing that's going to keep you from having community. By the way, that thing about yourself that embarrasses you, that you're ashamed of, that's the thing that's going to keep you from coming to worship Yahweh. That's the thing that's going to exclude you from belonging. How many people do we know who carry that kind of shame? Who feel that even if they came to church, they have questions. Like maybe people will be nice and maybe they'll be tolerant, but will I really be accepted? Will I actually belong there? And I think we have to ask ourselves, if there are people in our lives who are hurting, who are lost, who are searching and questioning, and we feel hesitant to invite them into our lives, feel hesitant to invite them into our church, why is that? Why is it that we feel that certain kinds of people don't feel like they will belong here? See, it's easy for us to look back on the religious elite and the Pharisees and, you know, be like, oh, thank Jesus, I'm not like them, and forget that we actually have the propensity to to be exactly the same way. It just looks very different today. The spirit of religiosity is alive and well. Notice that in this passage that the Ethiopian was reading, he was reading this, this prophecy in Isaiah about the suffering man. This is a messianic prophecy. Then they're talking about Jesus. At the time they wrote it, they didn't know that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. But now that we've revealed, Jesus revealed himself to us, we know that this is who Isaiah was writing about. And Philip got to share the good news that the Messiah that this was a man who was acquainted with humiliation and pain. He was the man of suffering. He was a man who was denied justice. It says, who can describe his generation? Another translation says, who can speak of his descendants? Meaning the Messiah will have no children to leave on the earth. Imagine how that would resonate with a eunuch who is also unable to pass down his lineage through his sons and daughters. He's able to see himself in the suffering Messiah. That's why he wants to know, is the, is the Messiah talking about himself or someone else? Here's something else that's amazing. So he's reading out of chapter 57 of Isaiah in this part of Acts, which means he probably just read chapter 56 right before he met Philip. I'm going to read to you a portion out of chapter 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. That's what the eunuch had just read before he met Philip. The Ethiopian is seeing himself in the scriptures, a foreigner and a eunuch. 
And the prophecy is telling him, don't say that just because you can't have biological children that you can't belong to my family. Because when you belong to me, I give you an inheritance. I give you a blessing that is far greater than what simple children can give you. My name endures forever. Imagine the good news for the Ethiopian, a man who had probably experienced humiliation and exclusion from every place of worship that he visited. He learned on that day that the gospel was for everyone, including someone like him. He was so shocked that the gospel was for him that he didn't even bat an eye when Philip disappeared out of thin air. What a weird part of that story. Philip is just there, and then he's gone, and, and the Ethiopian's like, woohoo, I know Jesus. And I'm like, someone just disappeared. Anyway, um, the Bible's weird. Are we listening Are we listening? Do we truly believe that the good news of Christ is not just for everyone, but for anyone, including the people who don't fit the categories of what I deem to be typical? Do we make space in our hearts and in our minds for people to belong, or just the people that are like us? Are we extending generous belonging to people who maybe are neurodivergent, people who learned English as a secondary language, people with physical disabilities, people who are deaf or blind, people who are much older than we are, people who are much younger than we are, people with a different kind of sexual brokenness than yours, people who have addictions, people who don't have houses, people who are single or celibate, people who vote differently than me. Do I actually believe that God's community is for everyone? Am I willing to set aside my discomfort and my offended sensibilities my conveniences to make that vision a reality for anyone I may encounter. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, all are welcome here. Anyone can show up. It's another thing to say, hey, we built this with you in mind. Why offer Spanish translation when only 14% of Yamhill County is Hispanic? Why create seating for people who use wheelchairs? Why create cool-down spaces in our kids' rooms for kids who might be neurodivergent. Because those who are often excluded from the masses are the people whom Jesus prioritizes, the people whom Jesus actively seeks out. We have a long way to go at Red Hills for everyone to feel like that's this place. But don't you want to be a part of that church? Don't you want to be a part of the church that when someone says, hey, listen, I know that my experience is different. Could I I belong there? Would I really would I really be able to engage with what you're offering? Wouldn't you want our answer to be yes? Like, the, like the, uh, Philip, when he asks, what's going to keep me from being baptized? Don't you want the answer to be nothing? Here's water. We'll do it right now. That's what I want for our church. We have to be willing, though, to make space for whom Jesus would run after. And sometimes that's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. But what I see in the scriptures is that God is running after those of us who feel like we're different. And we can't let our sensibilities get in the way of what God wants to do, right? I used to have this very weird but very cool job. I worked for uh, this nonprofit organization called First Image. They run the pregnancy resource centers of Greater Portland. And uh, I was in charge of the sexual integrity program, which means that I went around to public high schools and I talked to students in their health classes about all the lighthearted stuff like abuse and pornography and trafficking and all that. So I did this for three years. And uh, 
because I, this is what I did, the students gave me a nickname. They called me the sex man, <laughs> which, you know, in the classroom, makes sense. That's what I'm talking about. I'm the sex guy. But in public, it's not so funny, right? <laughs> I remember I went to the old spaghetti factory one night with my family. And we walk in, and the host behind the counter recognizes me from their class and says, hey, in front of a very full waiting room, aren't you the sex man? And I was like, hey, shut up. <laughs> You're going to get me arrested on a Tuesday. That's not what I want right now. Anyway, at that job, um, at that job, I encountered a lot of people with very hard stories, you can imagine, right? I was at a high school one day speaking to a health class, and um, there was a freshman there who was in the middle of transitioning from identifying as a female to identifying as a male. And during the class, they raised their hand and began to share their experience with sexual abuse. And I interrupted them because I could tell the stories were going to go to places that were going to make people uncomfortable. So I said, thank you for your vulnerability and your courage. Would you mind talking to me after class? So after the class was over, she came up to me and I sat and I listened as she gave me an almost unbelievable history of sexual abuse in her life. Stuff that I will never be able to unhear or unsee. And my heart broke in ways I didn't know it could that day. And more than anything, I wanted to wrap my arms around this child and tell her that Jesus loved her more ferociously than she could possibly imagine. But I was on the clock, and talking about Jesus in the context of the classroom could have gotten our program uninvited. So after the conversation was done, I went back to my car, I closed the door, and I just lost it. I started to cry. And I remember my prayer that day. I remember it very distinctly. I said, God the rest of your kingdom better be doing what it's supposed to be doing. I said, there better be Christians out there who are ready to extend belonging to this person before they believe or behave correctly. I can only hope that there were Jesus followers out there who had the heart of Philip, who were willing to reveal the goodness of God by how well they were willing to listen and to hear her despite whatever sensibilities they had that might be offended by what she was choosing to do. Here's a perfect example, guys. When we hear the word transgender, for example, we've been conditioned by our popular media to jump immediately to debate around public policy, around politics, school curriculum, theology, morality, etc. These things are very important. We need to have these conversations. But listen, how many people, how many human beings get bypassed, get overlooked, how many stories don't get really heard because we're so busy debating about them that we don't see them? How often does that happen? Listen, Red Hills is a four-square church. We're a part of the International uh, uh, Gospel, what is it? The International Church of the Four-Square Gospel. That's who we are. <laughs> I promise I know it. Um, <laughs> and we are proud to be a part of that family. I love Foursquare. And we love our movement. And as members of the foursquare expression of God's kingdom, we hold to what we call a biblically and historically orthodox sexual ethic, which means a few things, okay? It means that we believe any sexual activity outside of marriage covenant is a sin, which means that it's not designed uh, for human flourishing in God's uh, design. 
That includes things like pornography and other activities that are designed for sexual pleasure outside of marriage. It also means that we uphold marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman. And it also means that we believe that a person's biological sex is a beautiful part of their identity to be celebrated and embraced. And I want you to know that your pastor is in full alignment with that ethic and with that theology. And anything that's preached from here will follow those convictions. However, my heart is broken when I think about the way some Christians treat members of the LGBTQ plus community who are, whatever their particular brokenness, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, longed for and desired by God. All of our sexuality is broken. All of our desires are in need of restoration and healing. And our fellow humans who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria are just like us in that way. And it's a shame that we get so caught up in this confusion, that if we're to extend generous belonging to people, this means that we have to condone someone's behavior. Those two things do not have to be mutually exclusive, right? This is not the case. To embrace a person is not to endorse their sin. Otherwise, none of us could even be in this room, right? Some churches will go to one extreme or the other. They'll require kind of this transform, unspoken transformation before belonging. That before you come and be a part of our church, the certain parts of your life that we feel need to be set up and doing the right stuff, that's the things that you need to have figured out before you belong to us. And there are other churches that extend belonging without inviting them into the challenge of Christ's transformation and renewal. Luis Palau, he used to say this before he died. I heard him preach and he said, Jesus loves you just the way you are. And... He loves you too much to leave you that way. This is why we chose our language so particularly in our vision statement, that our dream would be that every person in our community is fully embraced and fully transformed in Christ Jesus. And I know that this subject makes some of us really uncomfortable. You feel the tension in the room? It's, it's, it's not theoretical anymore. All of us know people who are dealing with this. All of us have gone to schools or have worked in workplaces, or have family members where this is a reality. It's hard. And sometimes out of our fear and anxious reactivity, we get so consumed with fighting against ideologies and debates that we forget that our primary role is to be ambassadors of the kingdom. Fear will fight against ideologies. Love is going to fight for people, the way Jesus fought for you and me. That's why we're a community that's following Jesus from fear to love. Jesus was somehow able to perfectly embody grace and truth. And I think Jesus was justified in his truth because he was perfect in his love. This is where I'm going to preach at you for a second. I think we need to look to Jesus here. I believe we only have a right to be as outraged with someone as we are heartbroken for them. If your convictions outrun your compassion, I think you need to take a hard look at that. I think we only have a right to preach at someone as much as we have listened to them. Notice that this story, it's truly a dialogue between Philip and the Ethiopian, who the Ethiopian has already been pursuing Jesus without even realizing it through this Old Testament prophecy. Are we looking for people like that? Because I think a lot of people in this world are looking for Jesus and they just don't realize they are yet because Jesus has been given a bad name or whatever but people are looking for Jesus. 
He is the ultimate fulfillment to all of our longings and our pain. He wants to heal us. God sent Philip to this man because that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus was doing when he walked the earth. He was not looking for reasons to exclude people. He was seeking out those whom society deemed to be excluded, and he was extending his generosity to them. He was extending his transformational power and his renewal. Jesus is not looking for gatekeepers to the kingdom. He's looking for guides to it. So we need to move from being gatekeepers of the kingdom and be guides to it. We have to ask, do we find ourselves in a place where we're more concerned about our religious sensibilities than we are about extending the love and mercy of God? Are we ready to leave the 99 to go after the one? Sometimes we tend to think of our communities like this graph here, that if we have the right beliefs and the right behaviors, then we can belong, then we're in. But until you have the right beliefs and behaviors, you're excluded, you're out. But I don't think, when I look at the scriptures, this is how Jesus works. Jesus enters into the lives of the forgotten and the unseen, and he welcomes them into his life, and they spend a lot of time getting a lot of stuff wrong. (laughs) The disciples didn't even really think they knew who Jesus really was until maybe the last year of his life. Some would argue even after that. They were trying to figure it out. We're all figuring things out. And you're ahead of me here. This is the next graph. This is what I think life is actually a little bit more like. So many people doing and believing so many different things, some people really close to what is right belief and right behavior, and some really far away. But friends, listen, our proximity to religion is far less important than the orientation of our lives towards Jesus. I can be really close to church. I can be following all the rules. So are the Pharisees. But if my life isn't pointed towards Jesus, I will fail to recognize him when he walks into the room. Jesus is in the business of transforming us into his likeness, but sometimes we feel more comfortable if he transforms other people into our likeness. That's not how it works. They come upon some water in the desert, and you can almost hear this like hopeful anticipation in his voice, right? What can keep me from being baptized? I've been excluded my whole life. What is it? What's the thing this time? What's going to keep me from, from, from experiencing this hope And this community that you've said, what is it? And Philip doesn't even say a word. They see water, they stop the chariot, and he baptizes him right on the spot. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. I will baptize you right here, right now. Are we ready to extend our community in generous belonging? Are we ready to have people be fully embraced before they are transformed? I think there are two kinds of people in the room. Maybe more than two, but you know, sermons. I think some of us uh, maybe are feeling convicted. And I think we're feeling like, you know what? There's some places in my heart that are not open for generous belonging. Maybe there are certain kinds of people where they're, if they were sitting next to me in this chair, maybe I wouldn't want them here deep down inside. And maybe the Holy Spirit wants to do some work with you and me on opening up our heart and minds to welcome people before we welcome it into the building. And then I think there are those of us here who feel more like the Ethiopian. Maybe you're here on a whim, and maybe you're really uncomfortable. (laughs) And you've kind of thought, like, church is not for me. Jesus is not for me. There's something innately about me that makes Christians want to walk away from me. There's something innately about me that I know God won't love. And I want you to know, this is your sign. (laughs) God sent Philip to the Ethiopian but he's running after you. He wants you. He loves you. 
and longs to be with you. He wants you to be with him forever. This is the gospel. So if you're ready to accept that invitation, if you're ready to set aside that fear and to step into his love, we want to do that with you. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in silence right now, in silent prayer. I want you to have a moment with Jesus. Again, I'll say it again. Whether or not you agree with me is beside the point. What you and the Holy Spirit work out is going to matter a lot more. So have a prayer time with you and God. And then after that, we're going to take communion. And there are going to be people that come up after the service to pray for you. And if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, we would love to partner with you in your journey and help connect you to a Bible and community and all that. So if that's you, have a moment with Jesus now and then come up to the front for prayer afterwards. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for your peace. We ask that your truth, your wisdom, your love would um, enter into our hearts and minds now. Would you reveal to us what it is to extend your belonging to those the way you've extended it to us? Amen.